Hi, I'm Hannah. And I'm Lydia. And we are a pair of bookends. And we were just hoping that we could interrupt this episode to ask you very kindly if you would sign up to our Patreon. Yes, if you have some spare change rattling around in your pocket, we would so appreciate it if you could go over to patreon.com slash a pair of bookends where you can support our work. We have been doing this podcast for nearly two years now and we wanted the opportunity to get to know some of you a little better. And via our Patreon, as well as getting exclusive benefits, you can also have the opportunity to share your own recommendations with us and to chat with us. And it's just a nice place for us to have our own little hub. For less than a price of a coffee, you can get exclusive Patreon-only benefits, such as our Patreon-exclusive book club, where you get to pick the book that we read each month, and also... Early access to all podcast episodes. And your chance to ask our authors your own questions. So please do, if you can, sign up to our Patreon via patreon.com slash a pair of bookends and support our work. We would appreciate it more than you can imagine and it helps us hugely to bring you all the extra special stuff. So come and officially become a bookend. Now on to today's episode. Welcome to A Pair of Bookends, the book club you can carry anywhere. We are your hosts and hopefully your new bookish pals. I'm Hannah MacDonald. And I'm Lydia Clare. Welcome to our debut Spotlight series where we shine a light on the freshest authors and their work. Today we shine a light on how to be somebody else. A brilliant debut set in New York City where we follow Dylan as she navigates living in a foreign country when she unexpectedly embarks on an affair that gets her to ask questions about who she really is. Sharp, well-observed and remarkable. We had to share this one with you. Miranda Pountney is a writer from London. She holds a BA in English Literature from Oxford University and an MA in Creative Writing from Bath Spa University. Prior to her MA, she also embarked on a career in advertising, both in London and New York. How to Be Somebody Else is her debut novel published by Jonathan Cape and we are so excited to be chatting to Miranda herself today. Welcome to A Pair of Bookends. Hi, thank you for having me. Really happy to be on. Thank you for coming on. We are so excited to speak to you today. But before we delve into the book, which we cannot wait to talk about, we have to ask you, what are you currently reading? I am actually rereading a novel at the moment, which is one of my favourites. It came out first in the 90s, I think, but was re-released in the UK just before the first lockdown, which is when I discovered it. And it's called In the Cut. I don't know if you guys have read it. Uh, It's by an American author called Susanna Moore. And it's about an English teacher in 60s New York who begins a journey of fairly graphic (laughs) sexual discovery with the lead detective in a murder investigation, a pretty brutal murder investigation. And as the novel progresses, she begins to suspect that he might be the culprit. Um, It is a really page-turning book and at times quite shocking, particularly given when it came out as well, it must have been even more so then, but quite shocking exploration of the dark depths of female desire and male desire. But also it's just written in the most beautiful, taut prose that is so precise and propulsive and sets this 
queasy tone that she just holds to the end of the novel. And even though this is like a third reading for me, I find I'm kind of holding my breath while I'm reading it. It's one of those. So highly recommend. Yeah. Oh my goodness. That I sounds incredible. <laughs> yeah, it is absolutely great. I mean, the book we were talking just before, the book stack is kind of heaving at the moment. So I shouldn't really be reading something for the third time. But you know when you just have to go back to something. It's that kind of mood. Yeah. But yeah, it's brilliant. Really recommend it. I can't believe I've never read that. I, I have heard of it before. I, th- I feel like they've talked. They talked about it on the the Hilo podcast when that was around. What there was a movie of it that was directed by, which is I think a lot a lot of people heard of, which was directed by Jane Campion, who's wonderful. But the movie kind of jumped the shark a bit. They changed the right. ending, you know. But it was like it was really heard about because it was like the first time Meg Ryan did full frontal, <laughs> and you're just like, oh. <laughs> you know, it was like, is that really news? But um, there's also a very hot young Mark Ruffalo in it, so I recommend it for that alone. But the book is nice. book is spectacular. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I'm dead excited. You're already adding to my never-ending pile of books, so thanks so <laughs> know, much for that. Dangerous. <laughs> Um, now we always start our debut spotlight series by asking what your process what your writing process has been like um, in writing your debut novel and what the kind of road to publication has been like but I'm very interested in the fact that you completed your BA then you went off to do work to work in advertising and then you came back to do an MA in creative writing so I kind of want to know were you always writing throughout and, and at what point did your book start for you it's funny I mean advertising is an interesting industry I love to mock it but it is actually I mean depending on which agency you work in it is full of a lot of quite smart creative people but it is also kind of the field of broken dreams right so everyone every copywriter wishes they were writing a book and every director you know and so everyone's clinging on to this sort of 60 seconds like how can we express everything you know so you it's a it's a great environment for people who are trying to get things done but I think you know taking the plunge is a different thing I don't know you guys are both actresses right yes yeah Mm -hmm. you always (laughs) followed that path or did you sort of do anything before or you know um I feel like when I graduated from uni I kind of got roped into working as a manager at the restaurant I was working at but that was like that mm. that was just I, I got pulled into that and it was money and acting does not make us much money <laughs> we're not like Hollywood that's actors the, like <laughs> yeah that's the thing about the creative industries and you know it felt like quite a safe thing to go into out of university it was kind of adjacent to creativity and then I you know you get used to the security and mm. you know, it offered me the chance to go every time you try and quit something pops up and then there was the chance to go to New York and then to stay there I had to be employed by them until I got a green card so I was sort of like complicit in being slightly trapped in it but you know it was quite a long career it was like you know I was in it for about 13 14 years wow. and then I had to come back to the UK unexpectedly for family reasons and that meant I was living it for a while near Bath which is where my parents live and found out about the Bath Spa MA and I thought well do you know what I'm here I have there's no plan now's as good a time as any and it was quite an extreme plunge because until then I just had tons of notebooks I would say the thing that I was confident in was my observations do you know what I mean it was like you have that sense that you're seeing life in a particular way or you're reverberating at quite a high level with things and so I was confident in that but actually you know getting that to amount to something is completely different so yeah I applied to the MA luckily I got in and at the time I didn't really have an idea for a book uh, which is why, you know, this book is not about me, but it's based in a lot of the, the things that I've been, because I'm like, you know, if you're, you know, writing about identity and searching, you know, you couldn't have a better setting than New York. And particularly 
you know, advertising, which is so full of people desperate to express and failing to, you know. So I sort of stuck with all of that and started from there. And I think people are quite sceptical about writing MAs. I see, you know, people love to hate them online for whatever reason. But I cannot tell you how lucky I was to do this. I think it was, it's it's not because I think writing is something you can teach particularly, but the privilege of being able to block off a year for this, or at least primarily for this, to make that statement of intention to yourself. I don't know if there was a moment for you guys in acting where you're like, this is me taking myself seriously. This yeah. isn't a hobby. I, I mean this now and I have to, you know, place some bets. And of course, then you're also alongside other people doing exactly the same, which it's such a solitary thing writing. And also the publishing industry feels so opaque to be around other writers and then other published writers who you're, you know, the ones who are tutoring you, benefiting from that experience. And there's also this sort of amazing kind of cross fertilization because, you know, all the, the tutors were all from different genres. And I, in my second time, a term, it was an absolute nightmare, ended up on a poetry module, which I had not like put myself up for. <laughs> And like, other than maybe stand-up comedy, writing poetry is my worst nightmare, you know? (laughs) It was a lot of effort just to not humiliate myself in that. But it ended up probably being the most beneficial thing for my novel writing because the economy of language and that razor-sharp focus that poetry has on the telling detail and also how acutely aware you are of describing something in an obvious or banal way after having tried to write poetry. Mm. Incredibly helpful. Anyway, I'm babbling. But in the final term, of course, you get to work one-on-one with uh, a published writer. And have you read any Tessa Hadley? I'm sure you've heard of Tessa Hadley. I've heard of yeah. her, but I've not read her yet. She's absolutely... I mean, she probably is one of the great short story writers of this moment. I think she's had maybe 33 short stories published in the New Yorker. Wow. No, which is is fairly extraordinary. She's also written four beautiful novels and is just the most generous reader, which is what you really need on a course like this. So she helped me enormously. And then that last time you're just focused on a single manuscript. And then I sort of had such a dream scenario that I almost want to lie because it makes me sound (laughs) very lucky. But Tessa shared it with her publisher, my manuscript, which was at the time probably only about 30,000 words. So it's like 100 pages in. And this was, you know, so right after the course, they liked it. I met with Jonathan Cape. Then I met with an agent. So it was a sort of a backwards thing. And there was a book deal just based on this section. So I had the incredible experience of finishing the book with that support behind me, you know, some money to pay rent, some wonderful editors in the background. So it really was an unusual and incredibly privileged journey. Yeah, that's incredible. (laughs) I have everything to thank that course for. And, and, you know, Tessa doing that, I think, was was unusual and amazing. And I'll be, you know, forever grateful. Wow. I mean, I'm always, like, so surprised at the differences in Davy Walther's kind of experiences. And we recently interviewed uh, Madeline Gray, and she had sort of a similar a similar like bout of luck but obviously it isn't just down to luck it's about your talent you know they were presenting a piece of work of yours so it wasn't just like oh you just got slipped in through the back door like that's not how it works you know they saw your work you're like I'm muscled in on this one I think what was so nice about it you know because there is you know obviously the book is not separate from the writing but you know the book wasn't finished so to have a publisher buy into your writing is just a really 
nice beginning to what I hope will be a long journey of working with them, which is like, you know, believing in that part of you versus, you know, whether this book takes off or doesn't, you know, mm. it was it was a lovely, I did get a bit of stage fright. I still, you know, despite that validation, I made a bit of a meal of it because I think it's a bit like, you know, when you're writing your first novel, you don't really expect anyone to ever see it. And there's something quite free about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then suddenly, oh, wow, it's getting published by Jonathan Cape. I better, you know, step <laughs> it up a bit. And uh, so I was a little bit paralyzed. And, and I also wasn't one of the stoics of lockdown. You know, the number of stories you hear about writers who, who were just like, oh, I wrote my novel in lockdown. I just literally was just like, oh my God, I'm too obsessed about Sainsbury's deliveries. How can I possibly? <laughs> but yeah, so no, it was a it was a really, really wonderful experience. I'm very lucky. We are so, so glad that you did get that yeah. unlock because we absolutely love this book. Um, and I would just like to start before we delve into the book with just reading a little bit of it back to you, if that's okay. <laughs> Because I think it really helps to kind of demonstrate how brilliant you are with words and also um, a little bit about the tone of the book. So I'm just going to go from it's just at the start of the novel and it's about Dylan talking about um, the book The Artist's Way and that she's got the artist's way. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So recommended by a friend as a tool for unblocking creativity. The Way to Art is the title they'd actually given, which is more honest about the art being over there, usually, while you are over here. It's divided into 13 weeks, each with its own chapter, then various tasks, all of them mortifying. Also, daily free writing, which seems too obvious a contradiction to attempt. This is a library copy, bookmarks abandoned at different stages, like corpses on Everest. It's so good. <laughs> so good. Like that, I just, I just, as soon as I finished that sentence, I was like, I need to read this all over again. This is just such a fantastically crafted piece of work. Oh, I um, love that <laughs> Absolutely brilliant. And again, that kind of brilliant approach that you've got in terms of tone and, and the feel of the book is what makes it so unique. What was it like for you to to craft that tone and develop that tone throughout it's funny it's probably the main I think for me rhythm is so important I that probably sounds a bit pretentious but you know when you think again about me talking about sort of being fairly new to writing when I began this it was the one thing that I felt I had a real set of instincts about which was whether or not the energy was coming across in the rhythm, if that makes sense. So it was it was so much about getting to the texture of a moment. You know, it's one of those books where most of the landmarks, I would say, are internal. And so it's how do you build the texture of that feeling as it happens? I, I It's quite hard to describe. I think I knew when I hadn't nailed it and that was the process of editing. So in each chapter, there was a particular, if you think of it like a sort of like a tune, a tuning fork, you're going for like an A minor. It's like, have I got it? Have I got it? You know? <laughs> and so it was, it was much more led by that kind of thing than, than necessarily knowing what was going to happen next. Or yeah, I think the plot sort of revealed itself. Whereas that other piece was something I really, you know, I think probably, you know, next time around, I might, I remember Tessa, again, to just talk about Tessa talking about you know the challenge of the novel being to hold this huge thing 
in your head. You know, it is a it is a massive piece of engineering versus, for example, the short story, which I love the way she describes as wonderfully irresponsible. You know, in the short story, you're sort of really it's a razor sharp focus on the essence of the thing or an aperture on a moment or whatever. And I think she described the novel like sort of building a bridge out over a river, you know, and I think learning about how to draft is having the best possible sense of how that bridge is going to land, what's on the other side that's worth getting to, et cetera, versus like, ooh, um, you know, look at the brickwork at the beginning or what's the view like from the middle, which I tend to get a bit caught up in because I love things at a line level. But yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but for me, the sort of the craft part is the bit I, I feel I have most instinct with. I think so much about, sorry, Hannah, I think so much about the, uh, the writing process is about instinct. A lot of it is instinct. And I think that the best writers are the writers that have great instincts, but not necessarily have the kind of, this is how you do it, like the map of how you do it. And sometimes I think, you know, like you were saying about like MAs and things, people say, oh, you know, the true writers can just write. And it's like, well, sometimes you have the instincts, but you need the kind of tutelage in terms of like, oh, well, this is how I channel those instincts in the correct way. So yeah, you need readers, you know, it's such a and that's why this course is so wonderful. You know, you guys know, we we're, were just talking about, you know, it's all about having too many things to read and not enough time. It's actually <laughs> a real gift when someone takes the time to, to to go through your work. And luckily on this course, everyone has to. Or they don't <laughs> but quite often the solution or the insight comes from someone who's writing something completely different to you. I mean, I'm not particularly a, a fantasy reader, for example. And there was a girl in our group writing this sort of werewolf thing. And, you know, I wouldn't have been her reader and she wouldn't have been my reader. But some of her comments were the most useful things. And I think also when you're learning, the answers are so simple. It, you know, they're all to be found in, in well, sorry, not all of the answers, but craft-wise, they're all to be found in the books of the writers you love. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you're just like, oh shit, I just need a line break. You know, you're, you're tortured <laughs> about. And also I think it's, you know, very simple things like trusting the reader, I think, you know, no, they're not going to think that person is sitting on the toilet for the rest of the novel because they haven't stood up and pulled it pants up you know they can figure that out and I think one of the things that was so interesting to me about working with great editors as well is how much they do leave it to you how you know they they got you on board because they believe in your writing and it's about getting you to trust those instincts rather than forcing something on you I mean I remember being really relieved when finally I got a final draft to them because I thought oh it will be you know three weeks of my pages on the floor and we'll just so you know it was like a couple of paragraphs which was like this is where the heat is. This is where it's not working. You know, see you next time. And I was like, oh crap, I have to write it myself. (laughs) (laughs) But it was, it was a wonderful experience. And you think, I think the first one is, you know, for me, it was, despite the lovely beginning I had quite long and torturous because I was still finding my voice as a writer and I really wanted to get as close as I could to something I felt very proud of but I think the next one yeah there'll be all sorts of different ways of of approaching it you know yeah and I really want to push further into the book because I need to talk about Dylan who is your (laughs) protagonist now it is quite an annoying thing that people say to writers with a debut novel about you know as we were saying before about how much of it is is true to your life and your own experiences but there are some similarities <laughs> between <Yeah>. your <laughs> yeah. journey and and the things that that Dylan goes through um yeah. I'm not sure to what extent but we don't need to go into that but I I love <laughs> getting stuck I in really want to answer that question <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> no, I'm I'm not, you know, I'm not suggesting anything, but I, I love getting stuck into characters like Dylan that yeah. are kind of so full of complexities and the the novel feels like a very much like a pressure cooker, but she is the pressure cooker and we we are kind of witnessing her make these chaotic choices that, you know, aren't always the most beneficial to her. And I wanted to ask, what was the inspiration for Dylan and, and what did you want to capture about being at this point in your life that she's at? Yeah, I mean, I actually started with the character uh, and, and really built the novel around her. So just to address the similarities, <laughs> even for people who haven't read it yet, I'm not like psychopathics. Um, but I think it I think it's probably a bit of a trope of debut writers to stick a little bit to what you know. But as I was saying, the themes that I was really interested in exploring, you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I'm like, this environment is perfect and I know it, and I'm gonna lean into that. But you know, what happened in my life was I had to quit advertising, I had to come back to England, and I was in my childhood bedroom writing a book, and I was thinking, what might have happened if I'd quit and stayed in New York? Like what would it and I, I I this is not me saying this is what would have naturally it's <laughs> trying to I mean the joy of writing is is exploring extremes and I think you know I'm quite a, a bit of a people pleaser I don't love confrontation things like that so it was really a joy writing a character who says what I couldn't and who like who really I think it's a it's an almost sort of intellectual approach I mean there is a kind of a bit of a trope at the moment of the sort of the unraveling woman and it gets very patronizingly called like the sad girl novel or whatever which is I cannot bear as a as a description for anything I remember reading a piece recently in let's just say a respected publication which described the bell jar as the original sad girl novel and it's just so patronizing and flattening of the beauty and complexity of that piece of writing. I mean, is is there a sad boy novel? Like, is The Catcher in the Rye the sa- a sad boy novel? Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, All of them are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, but I think, you know, there is a sort of sense of somehow there's a state of the nation. If it's a, if it's a man yes. evolving, there's a state of, this is a commentary on, you know, the futility of striving for greatness in society, you know, whereas a woman falls apart, right? Equally, women write their diaries. It's like, that's why women always get questioned in fiction. Like, you know, God, how much of this happened to you? You know, often, <laughs> often really inappropriately when there's like, you know, sexual abuse or something as a as a topic, it's like, you know, wow, this yeah. is, kind of, you know. But yeah, Dylan is is very much a, a fiction. And I, I really liked putting her in advertising because I think I like, versus the unraveling thing, I like the idea of a character who's smart, accomplished, apparently fully formed, and yet somehow persuasive to everyone but herself. Mm-hmm. You know, so in advertising, you know, she's literally in the business of persuasion. She can come up with a cohesive proposition for like a scented suppository, but she can't do it for herself. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so I did want that journey that she goes on not to be one of unraveling, but a more conscious almost intellectual exercise like the same way that she's executed the rest of her life that's both kind of exhausting and at times very funny to me at least and of course doomed to fail and I think the more intellectual she becomes about the subjects that challenge her which is of of course also 
a defensive pose, the worse her behavior. You know, you can't step outside of life to experiment it without collateral damage. There will always be consequences. But writing some of those sort of colder moments of hers, I found really difficult. And even things like, you know, I'm sure we'll end up talking about sort of motherhood and things like that. But like her bringing that sort of rational framework to that side of things, I found really hard to write because it felt so, I don't know, we'll, we'll probably talk about it later. But yeah, she's, <laughs> she was a, a real joy to write because I think particularly when you feel quite uncomfortable mm-hmm. in some of the things you're writing, you've probably got to a good place. I remember Phoebe Waller-Bridge saying that with Fleabag, you know, mm. it wasn't her. But she, when she got uncomfortable, she knew she'd got to a, a rich place. It was touching some kind of nerve that, yeah. you know. I love those kinds of characters, though. And, and I think what I think really st- struck me, and my stomach just rumbled really loudly. I'm so sorry if I heard that. <laughs> <laughs> um, what really struck me about this character was that all the, all the like, bad choices that she was making were things that, you know, there were impulses that she's acting on that, I will often tell myself, no, you mustn't do that because I'm, like you said, I'm a people pleaser. And I'm like, oh, well, I mustn't do that. I mustn't act on my impulses because that's not the right thing to do. But what is the right thing to do, you know? So when she kind of walks out of her career after like 10 years and she's like, I've got no plan. I'm like, you know what? I really respect that. (laughs) (laughs) I really respect the fact that she just followed that impulse. And yeah, maybe it wasn't the right thing to do. But in the moment she was like, no, fuck this. Like, I'm done. So I like, yeah, I really respect that. And I don't know. Yeah, I... I wish sometimes that I could be that person, but I just don't think I will be. You're writing fiction, right? Mm-hmm. Anything happens. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And again, I think, you know, a lot of my process was like about how far can I move from my comfort zone of how I might have dealt with a situation. And the further mm-hmm. I went, the richer the scene, you know, or the, the material. Yeah. So I am very excited about talking about this and I know that Hannah will be too. <laughs> Can we talk about affairs? <laughs> we love an affair. We love affairs. We love affairs. Let's face it. And we really do love an affair narrative. They're so, it, they bring up so much about, about human nature and mm-hmm. um, it's such a brilliant device. But how central was this theme for you in terms of, you know, you wanted to include this affair? And also, what does it, do you think it reveals about the characters? Um, and I will say as a little bit of context for our listeners that at the very beginning of the novel, um, Gabe, who is the man she has an affair with, reveals that he's married by saying, oh, by the way, I'm married, but um, it's not a thing. Um, <laughs> so I just wanted to make sure that was clear. I mean, yeah, I'm I'm with you. Who doesn't love a bit of illicit chemistry in life and in, in <laughs> fiction? But also I think it makes, it's not, to answer your question, it's not something that I set out to write particularly. As I was saying, I was going for a tone and a texture and then sort of what was going to get me to it kind of fell in. And I think I thought when I first started writing this, that this, you know, it's quite an intense single perspective throughout the book. And I think I thought I could hold that throughout. So this person is going to explore and experiment this, that and the other. And it became clear very quickly that I needed (laughs) situations she could sort of reflect and refract and and things like this. And I think it really, I mean, an affair in this book makes sense for a novel, which is essentially about the inherent appeal of 
things that are out of reach, you know, selves that are out of reach, a city that is, its proposition is being out of reach. That's the whole point of the skyline. The second you're in it, it, you know, it evaporates. You can't see it anymore. And I think also, you know, an affair is necessarily a space of unreality, of uncertainty and half-answered longings. And it's also, again, something so often driven by the desire for change, you know, a desire to feel a set of feelings that have either, I think in the life stage of my characters versus a lot of these things are coming out at the moment, you know, young girls bullying for older men or whatever it might be, but a desire to feel a set of feelings that have either ceased to be accessible or perhaps have never been experienced. I think there's also no easier way to see yourself through new eyes than in a new relationship you know you're constantly imagining yourself through the eyes of this other person it's so much easier than trying to sort of re-envisage re yourself I also think for Dylan it's so much about timing you know re meeting Gabe in like a really split second of porousness do you know what I mean she's hanging over the edge of a fire escape touching her tongue to an ice cube a gust of wind sends over smoke from cigarettes and Gabe's attached to the end of it. And who was it? I think it was Joan Didion who said something like, life changes in the instant. You sit down to dinner and life as you know it ends. You know, the big stuff doesn't add up. It happens, you know, it happens in that way. And then I think lastly, practically speaking, there's also a certain amount of life stage involved with the characters I'm writing. You know, someone of Dylan's age, uh, it, if the readers don't, uh, listeners don't know, she's like 38 by the end of the novel. They're more likely to be coupled up or separated or divorced than straightforwardly single. And not to give away any spoilers, but I also like that there's a slightly more complex dynamic at work in the mm -hmm. Dylan and Gabe situation. You know, at a certain point, it's unclear who's betraying who and who's betraying themselves and all of that. So, but yeah, it's it's really rich material. And there's always a, you know, it's obviously very trodden ground in fiction, but there is always, there's always something new to find in it, I think. I think it's so difficult to talk about this book and tread carefully without giving spoilers. I was so conscious when I was kind of thinking about what we could, what we were going to ask you because I was like, oh, there's so much that I selfishly want to ask about. <laughs> but we've got to kind of... Away anyway, it's my first interview on this, so I'm just going to like... <laughs> no, it was it was so great. And, you know, like we've said so many times on the podcast, like we love an affair narrative and I think it kind of... It, it's sort of this, the same thing I was speaking about before where it's an imp it's all about impulses and whether you act yeah. on that impulse or not and there's and as you just said you know life happens in these like small moments it's not like a it, so the affair is the big thing but it's all about that that little choice that's made and that yeah. those little choices that continue to be made and yeah. I think that's fascinating to watch happen mm. you know I enjoyed watching her continue to make those choices even though she probably knew it wasn't the right thing to do and I think she says at one point about herself like oh she really was a prize cunt <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and I was like gosh I truly love that word I know I overuse oh it oh god <laughs> but it's just yeah it's it's criminally neglected I yes. feel it really is it's very refreshing I enjoyed yeah, I enjoyed it and yeah. sometimes no, no other word will work. This is true. So. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think also, you know, an affair is another way of kind of hedging. I think New York is really, I mean, it's such a clever, you know, thinking of this advertising world. And at the beginning, she's working on tourism New York. So it really gets her sort of trying to think about the idea that she's put herself in. But it is, you know, it's obviously a really important character in both the place, of course, but more so New York, the emotion, you know, mm -hmm. it's, 
really is the city that is the you know the psychic home of the fantasist and this novel is so much about fantasy ideas of the self of other people how we build and dismantle these you know the chasm between the reality and the perception i think also the idea of arriving in new york is inescapably symbolic you know it's mm -hmm. so much connected with the idea of change but what's so clever about it is it doesn't require you to articulate what that changes you know it's this big statement of intention you know I'm arriving in New York but then there's the kind of dot 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 and it's like it's funny to me that the city has such a reputation for you know driven people mm -hmm. who are going after what they want when in my experience which is admittedly you know small in my corner of the city but the thing most people had in common was they were still trying to articulate what they want and that's what brought them to the city you know so you have this kind of raging untethered ambition you know because the cost of entry is so high everyone's in these insane jobs and they really look like they mean them but that sort of untetheredness is you know it's galvanizing but at a certain point can become quite manic so the city then becomes quite an interesting melting pot of people in a state of in-betweenness which is why I was interested in a cast of characters who've been there for a long time you know it's not that wide-eyed arrival but something more complex and thorny where the yearning is a bit more weary and the promise of the city is kind of flagging and I think, yeah, I mean, I think uh, on the in-betweenness thing, I think an affair is the ultimate state of in-betweenness, isn't it? It's not. Yeah. If, 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 if New York is about keeping a foot in the door, like Dylan still with Matt, starting with, it's a sort of not quite committing. I mean, here is a character who is like horrified by the idea that everything you choose is instead of something else. And New York is full of those people. I was, it's <laughs> one of the most obvious truths, but it is, it's kind of, you know, it's, it's a horrible thought, isn't it? You know, every every choice you make is instead of something else. Anyway. That's, that's quite an existential thought for the morning. I, I, <laughs> I said it, I was like, it sounds incredibly obvious, but at the same time, it's like, no, it's not what drives us crazy in life. Yes, yeah, 100%. <laughs> and weirdly, you've just completely answered my next question, which was going to be really? about New York. Um, no, not at all. Don't be sorry. You know, it's, it's lovely to hear you chat about it because New York, York is one of my like favorite places I've only visited once conveniently um my university had a trip to New York oh, in nice. our final year it was the same week as my 21st birthday so it was very convenient for me <laughs> oh, nice. yeah. um, so I, I and I absolutely loved it and I definitely romanticized the idea of New York before I'd gone there and and it was still it had this magical hold over me like I, I don't know what it was about the city but it was just so like it was so bursting with life it's a really like bustling city you know they say it's a city that never sleeps and and i feel like that's so true and you really get a sense of that in this novel that this is where all the kind of magic happens and all the excitement happens and i think that's why she doesn't want to leave it's also the great pressure of the city though because it's like the threat and the promise of something might happen at any moment yes but also, but also nothing might happen yeah you know and and i think what you're describing that feeling can carry you for a really long time mm -hmm. and there is this feeling of and to be honest it's it's why i moved there when i did i sort of you know life was okay i've got friends that i love but i could see the next 10 years in the same sort of three pubs and engagement parties and this that and the yeah. other and i'm that's fine but i I need something else. And I think New York sort of resets the clock, but also in a way 
you can find yourself delegating. It's that thing I was saying about arriving there as such a statement of intention Mm -hmm. that there is a lot of, I don't know, you can become quite passive at that point. It's like, well, I've done it, I've got there. And the city provides its own sense of momentum for a really long time. Mm -hmm. And I think Dylan, I think there's a point where she sort of has, because she's in a manic job and she's in a manic city and she's got, you know, she's quite established. I think there is a moment where she suddenly realizes that despite seeming to be engaged in life, she is also somehow a passive witness to it. And Mm. I think there is a sort of a crossing over point in New York. And it's so funny because the, you know, the new blood comes in uh, because there's so much churn versus, you know, living in London, or at least for me, you know, a lot of school friends ended up there and university friends, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of people and you end up sort of continuing patterns and things like that. Whereas in New York, people are arriving and leaving the whole time. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like there's a bit of a relay race for the energy. Like, so you, you're flagging, but someone new arrives and that, you know, they can keep the dream alive. It's like, well, so excited <laughs> to see you, whatever. And there is this kind of feeding off each other yes. thing. And I think it's something I really enjoyed exploring with the Addy and Dylan sort of tension being, I think, you know, I think also with, you know, with women at a certain age as well, you know, we're in a very positive moment of celebrating like the power of female friendship, but I'm really interested in its complexities too, or it's more fun to write about the complexities, I think. And no relationship that involves true intimacy doesn't have multiple sides. Mm -hmm. And so at this life stage where women's circumstances begin to diverge so much, like, you know, who's getting married or you having kids or neither career versus family, our role in propping up one another's belief systems necessarily evolves and with this can come crossed wires and insecurity and misunderstanding and it was really interesting to sort of augment this by by being in a city like New York where complicity is so fundamental to survival you know by this I mean at least you need your inner circle to agree that despite you know the wrench the rents and the roaches and the insane day jobs and the confrontation that New York the idea is still worth it. And I think Dylan beginning to poke at that a bit <laughs> creates like a glitch in the matrix. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's, you know, particularly for Addie, who shares a lot of the same uncertainty, but isn't ready or willing to stare it down. So she takes it very personally. And I think also, you know, likewise for Dylan, her Sally has always operated for her a bit like New York, you know, providing a constant sense of challenge and motion. So Sally moving out of the city and seeming to conform to some like, albeit loose model of domesticity is really discombobulating. So I'm really interested in these tendrils. Do you know what I mean? And they're very strong in, in New York because you find your people, you need to, it's that kind of city. Yes. But then you really rely on them. Like you've all got on the same raft. And if someone yeah. stops rowing or like, you're just like, Whoop, you know, it's, <laughs> it's kind of like a sort of, I don't know, it's a bit like a Jenga. It's like how many pieces can one person take out before the whole thing? <laughs> anyway. yeah. I think it's so interesting that that sense of kind of like, I, I love the way that you created the characters in the book and the cast of characters in the book and and the people that surround Dylan, the, you know, her kind of social capital. It, it was such a, a wonderful kind of breadth of people. I particularly loved Hazel, who's in it for just a moment, but is just the most fantastic person in the world. <laughs> Like a manifestation of what you want to bump into in New York, but I never, yeah. never quite, never quite did. I have to admit, though, the other guy, Ezra, who mm. is also in that 
far seen. It's very closely, but I can only say this because I don't think he would ever find this podcast very closely based on someone I met in a bar like that, which I have to say, this is again how I differ from my character, that was my absolute mecca in New York. <laughs> cannot tell you. It was one of those, you know, one of those things, and not to sound like a cliche, but where you feel like you found the lost mm. New York. But I also, I loved then taking that in the book and sort of, you know, the it's that, it's, again, it's that thing about the sort of the relay, people trying to keep the idea of the city going. It is a team effort, even though everyone has a completely different New York in their head that they think they've arrived in. And I love the, you know, this guy in his 70s sort of trying to repeat himself in his 20s, trying to keep <laughs> this old bar alive that used to be, you know, sorry to be graphic, you can edit this out, but the only place he could get a hand job or whatever. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, but like sort of repeating and failing to deliver his lines with meaning. I, I don't know, the, the joy of that is just sort of, it is that thing where like, people love to say like, oh, only in New York, only in New York. And it always really, I find it irritating. And I'm just like, but seriously in that situation. But yeah, I loved writing Hazel. And it is that, it is that gorgeous sense of, and it's something that really is one of the great things about that city is doing things on your own and the people that talk to you. I feel like there's a very British thing of like fear of, people on their own like oh gosh we mustn't get lumbered you know <laughs> you know it's that <laughs> exactly whereas in new york it's this you know it's another audience particularly with new yorkers ah, here's someone who hasn't heard my story yet <laughs> and i love that i'm like give it to me i'm here for it you know but yeah no he was so great um i also want to quickly scurry back to sally because yes. she was brilliant and I don't think I will ever recover from the line. Um, I've got it written down somewhere. I masturbated to the Argonauts furiously in the first term of my MBA. That section about claiming your <laughs> desires, fuck. <laughs> that is art. I love it. I mean, it feels like a, a great way. Maggie Nelson deserves someone to climb up. Are you a fan? I, I absolutely love her writing. But, you know, again, it's that thing of taking something to an extreme. It's not something I personally have done, not that you need that information. But the, yeah, her, the freedom with which she writes about the body and the borderlessness and the limitlessness, it is so, it's so extraordinary to read as someone who's, you know, fairly conservative, probably, you know, by comparison. So it's a joy to write a character like Sally, who is just, you know, inside her body and everything's connected. I think with Dylan, she's either inside her body or inside her brain. And there is a, a problem connecting the two. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that's part of the huge appeal of Gabe. She's about to enter a rather like harrowing, unhelpfully intellectual process of like, you know, who am I? What do I want? What are my values? What, you know, all of this kind of stuff. And there's something so wonderfully irrational about that. It's animal and it, you know, there is no room for, there is no room for that kind of exercise. But yeah, I love Sally too. <laughs> yeah, she was, she was great. And, and I, what I was, I mean, you kind of touched on it before about like the complexities of, of female friendship and what interested you about that. But I think it was such an interesting sort of contrast between Addie and, and Sally because I, I just completely panicked and thought I'd got Sally's name wrong, but it's definitely Sally. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I mean, like Sally is, you know, she's not, I don't want to say like a, a yes man because she's not like, not a man, but like she, she kind of doesn't tell Dylan 
I don't agree with what you're doing here or I think maybe are you doing this you know are you doing something right for yourself like is are you okay with what you're doing for yourself like she she doesn't she just kind of allows Dylan to make those choices and I don't, I don't know how how best to describe it but then you've got Addie and you almost feel like Addie's judging her and she can sense Addie's judgment and I think there was just such an interesting contrast between the two because you can tell Addie's someone that's quite quite responsible but Sally isn't and what those kind of different friendships feed Dylan was so interesting to read I think I think also there's like a fundamental difference which is probably the thing I was homing in on a bit of Sally doesn't need anything from Dylan and that is probably the most healthy version of friendship I can imagine I'm very embroiled in my friendships and you know I have needs and I give a lot and I need a lot and all that kind of stuff and Sally so Sally can sort of be there for her watch her. I think she I think actually also given what I was just saying about her approach to the body and the soul and how everything things up I think she probably thinks it's it's quite a healthy exercise and let's remember Dylan isn't sharing masses about it throughout you know some of the slightly more uneasy dynamics whereas Addy on the theme of them all being on their raft in New York you know just her personality anyway she is so god the amount, the amount of people I met like that luckily None of well, not luckily. I like Ali. I'm very affectionate towards her, but though it wasn't the people I gravitated to as, as sort of close friends, but we're trying so hard to make it work. It's like they're at the final, you know, it's like the final sort of, you know, particularly as you, as I was saying, with you know, women who get to a certain age as well, where you know, you expect pieces to have come together and all this kind of stuff. And I think it is really, it's it's a really a challenge for her that Dylan, you know, Dylan has played a certain role, who has been this great romantic about New York, who's kept the energy going, who makes makes the adventure happen, is suddenly sort of tapping out. I think it's like the the floor has gone from beneath her, you know, and it is that, you know, that journey of accountability, isn't it? Of sort of a bit like me and my, with my editor is like, oh, crap, it's my book. I have to write it. <laughs> I can't rely. I can't rely on the way, you know, New York sort of subsidizes. There's this wonderful little book written a long time ago. I can't remember. I can't um, can't remember when, but by someone called E.B. White called Here is New York. And he describes people as arriving in the city either through, and it's quite old fashioned language, through some surfeit of spirit or through some deficiency. And I think it's probably a combination of the two for, for Dylan, at least. And yeah. I think the deficiency evaporates in those first few years because you, you, everything feels so full and overstimulated, but then there's, you know, the city recedes a bit and suddenly you're the protagonist again. And that deficiency becomes more and more glaring, which is like, I came here to fill a gap, but I have to fill it. New, New York can't fill it. My friends can't fill it, you know? So yeah, it's a, it's a they were the perfect pair. There was originally... Another, it was one of the very helpful editing comments I had. There was originally another character who didn't, who I really enjoyed, but didn't particularly bring anything new to that section who, who disappeared. But I like these three as a trio. And also I did feel I had to make um, Abby and Sally childhood friends because otherwise it seemed quite unrealistic they'd be in the same social group. I was like, <laughs> how, can I, how can I make this happen? But uh, again, that's the joy of fiction. There's always a solution for you. <laughs> We have to say that this book brought us so much joy. Honestly, it was so much fun. And we cannot, we cannot recommend it enough to our bookends listening. Before we let you go, I do have to ask you, what are your literary influences? Well, it's interesting. I think that they t probably tend to be the writers I'm most 
sort of moved by or who've inspired me to want to write rather than writers I might have anything in common with necessarily or could ever hope to emulate. Probably a mixture of old and new, but Virginia Woolf for a thousand reasons. I think I think above all the way she depicts the self as sort of ever-changing and amorphous and contradictory and how the focus of her novels tend to be on landmarks which are interior those sort of small flashes of clarity or cohesion that then crumble just as quickly also the rhythm of her writing like she is a master of the sentence you know in between the acts she can fit the whole of human history into a line and then in Mrs Dalloway she can expand a single moment into a page with equal ease so and then contemporary writers I think Maggie Nelson we've already mentioned and Sheila Hetty I don't know if you've read any I love I mean they're very different writers but equally fearless and I think for both of them the novel or whatever mode they're writing in is a form of questioning and that's such a confident way to write there is a uh, we're in a a soundbite moment in culture where you have to feel like you have to offer up your morsel or take a stance. Mm. And for both of them, it feels like a, more of a meditation or a quest. And I love that about the writing. Also the way that they mold the form to their inquiry and not vice versa, particularly with Sheila Hetty. Have you guys read Motherhood? No. Oh. I've not read any Sheila Hetty yet. She's so good. <laughs> Do you know what? She is so great. Um, but I always have the feeling of that that's her going on in many ways, the cycle that Dylan does in the book. How do you rationally think about whether motherhood is right for you? When it is such an animal biological thing, your body's doing one thing, your brain, you know, can you figure it out outside the state of motherhood? But she does it in the most extraordinary way. But she has written another book that's on its way to me now. I think it's literally just come out called Alphabetical Diaries. Mm. Which, have you heard of it? I've heard of it, yeah. Probably got it in your proof stack. I'm so jealous. <laughs> I'm trying to see through the screen. But it takes her diary entries from the last 10 years and arranges them alphabetically, which is such an interesting concept. You know, the way I imagine, I haven't read it, but like unexpected synergies will emerge and mm. clashes will make new meanings. And it also really neatly sidesteps what I think is the horror of a diary and why I've never kept one. <laughs> Is your sense that it should sort of demonstrate some kind of progress in your mm. life? Do you know what I mean? So the idea of just getting it down and then shuffling the deck is yeah. genius, isn't it? It's so good. Very yeah. cool. Those guys, I think. That's um, an amazing list of literary influences. And I really want to talk about something else, but I mean, we, we, we are at time, which is why... <laughs> <laughs> we must we must round up but um I'm you know I'm very good you you were just touching on motherhood there and I was we didn't speak about that because I was very careful about the fact that I didn't want to give too much away with the book because I yeah. feel that's such a significant thing that happens in the book and that's all I'm going to kind of give to our listeners because yeah I don't want to give away too much because that was such a a huge moment for me in the book in your book before we let you go, I need to ask for a recommendation that you can leave us with. Okay, so this is a great one. I know you asked this, so I really thought about it hard. Normally I come to things quite late, so I'm like, I'm not going to think of anything you haven't already done or seen. But this is an Instagram, a guy called Emmett Cohen, who is a young jazz pianist in New York who live streams gigs out of his apartment. <gasps> um, also out in the world, he's a very celebrated musician, but he started doing these gigs in lockdown, which is when I found him and then just carried on. It's called Live from Emmett's Place. And he gathers a few musicians. I think maybe the double bassist and the drummer seem to be regulars, but 
singers, other instrumentalists rotate in and out. And he actually recently uploaded one with Samara Joy. Have you heard of her? She won the, the Grammy for the New, Arti- New Artist yes. Grammy this year. Yeah. Almost never happens for a jazz singer. And she has this like old timey. I mean, it's kind of Ella Fitzgerald reincarnated. It's incredible. Yeah. But yeah, the vibe of these gigs is just pure energy. And I think like writing is so solitary. And when you see musicians like that improvising as a collective, so totally in sync, it's just so joyful. And I, I should say that also, like for anyone who thinks they're not much of a jazz person, I would put myself in that category but this is like everything you want jazz to be in New York to be this guy's cramped little apartment and how he just eminent also he he's pretty fine so like if he's listening to this I would like my number you guys can <laughs> but yeah it's worth it it's worth a look just like it's it's impossible not to feel joyful after watching one of those that is such a good recommendation I'm, uh, I'm really excited to watch him. So thank you. I believe that your book will be out now when we upload this podcast because it will be not the Wednesday coming, but the Wednesday after that this will go out. Yeah. So your book will already be out in the in the UK. Is it going to be out anywhere else? Well, not as far as I know, but you never know. But you never know. Well, let's get it into uh, once, yeah. once um, our US audience listens to this, they're going to be like, oh my God, I want this book. And hopefully, you know. Are they going to say it in that voice? Maybe. <laughs> Are they going <laughs> to yeah. oh, It would be a dream to have this in a New York bookstore. I might just have to, I've got a, a two boxes of copies here. Just, like... <laughs> just go and put them out. Exactly. Yeah. Fly yeah. out and, and do just, it. Uh, and them. I, if you need a helper, I will volunteer myself to come with you to New York if I'm lost. Yeah. You guys have expenses on the podcast, right? So Amazing. Gorgeous. <laughs> oh, it's been such a joy to chat to you today, Miranda. Oh, yeah. Um, Thank you. Where can our listeners find you on social media? I'm a lurker, really. So, like, I'm on Instagram, but there's like one post. So, I mean, <laughs> please feel free to follow me on there. But I'm more, yeah. I If any, if I put anything up, it will be there. So perfect. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much um, for coming on a pair of bookends. And for our listeners, How to Be Somebody Else is out now in the UK. And I will pop a link in the show notes for you to buy it. And on our bookshop page, you can buy all of the recommendations that Miranda has been raving about today, um, which is very exciting. You can also follow us at Pair of Bookends Pod on Instagram and at Pair of Bookends on Twitter and TikTok. And if you enjoyed this episode, please do rate, review and subscribe so you can boost us in the charts. But yes, Miranda, thank you once again for joining us. It's been such a joy. Bye. <laughs>